I want to welcome all of you here today, and I want to say that I am glad to be back with my church family. Uh, most of you have heard that my mom passed away two weeks ago today, and this has been a tough time, no doubt about it. But my family has been so grateful for the love and the prayers and the support from all of you. We haven't had to go through this alone, and that's been a huge blessing. And you know, the timing of all of this has not been lost on me. And two weeks ago, we started this series, The Certainty of Eternity. And I preached a sermon called 10 Seconds After You Die. And in that message, I shared about our confidence from Scripture that whenever someone dies in Christ, that person goes immediately to be with Christ. So I preached that sermon, and then just a couple hours later, my mom breathed her last breath in this life. Then she went to be with Jesus. I'm so thankful for God's promises. I'm so thankful that I can look forward to a reunion in heaven with mom. After my sermon two weeks ago, I had conversations with several of you, and I can remember saying, this is real stuff we're talking about here. Losing my mom was a shock. We, we weren't quite ready for that, but it's really brought this truth home to me that this is for real. See, for my whole life, up until two weeks ago, my mom has not been someone who dies, but now, all of a sudden, she's not here anymore. Really, that's what this whole series is about. This life is short, no matter how long we live. All of us will leave this life and then we'll find ourselves in eternity. And you remember what we said. Everyone spends eternity somewhere. And for someone who belongs to Jesus, that's great news. Eternity means being with God forever in heaven. But what about those people who never accept Christ? Is hell for real? Is anyone really going there? These are difficult questions to think about. This is not a fun conversation. When I was down in Tennessee for mom's funeral, I was thinking about our preaching calendar, and I knew the schedule said we're supposed to talk about hell today. And you know what? I'll be completely honest with you. Um, for the past couple weeks, I haven't been looking forward to preaching about hell. I would much rather talk about heaven. I would much rather talk about a place where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. But Dylan got to do that last week. And he did a great job, so I don't need to cover the same ground. But then as I thought about it, is there ever a fun time to talk about hell? No, there's not. When we address this topic in a serious way, it's not fun at all. That's why most of us would prefer to avoid the subject or maybe turn it into a joke. When I was growing up, back when everybody got the newspaper, I used to love the comic section. And one of my favorites was called The Far Side. The Far Side was created by Gary Larson, and he would occasionally make jokes about hell using some of the stereotypes and caricatures that you don't find in the Bible. I'll share one example with you. This one is called Aerobics in Hell. Uh, you can see the instructor is a classic red devil, horns at all, and he's leading the group in a series of five million leg lifts. Maybe you think that's funny, maybe you don't. Uh, when I was young, I thought it was hilarious. 
but I wanted to share that with you to give you an example of how our culture thinks about hell. Uh, to a lot of folks, the whole idea seems more like a cartoon than reality. And if you try to talk about hell as a serious possibility, uh, many people just don't believe that it's real. You've probably heard someone say, I just have a hard time believing that a loving God would allow anyone to suffer for all of eternity. And again, I want to be honest. I've struggled with this idea myself. How do we reconcile a loving God with any kind of eternal punishment? One option would be to follow the lead of our culture and say, you know, hell just doesn't make sense to me, so I'm going to choose not to believe in it. It, it doesn't exist. But wow, uh, how can we put any faith in that conclusion? Uh, just wanting something to be true doesn't mean that it's actually true. That's common sense, right? But where do we go to get reliable information about hell? I say this a lot, but here at Plum Creek, we look to the Bible as our authority. We really believe that Scripture is inspired by God. So the Bible is where we go to find truth. Now, if you want to know why we believe the Bible is true, that's a different discussion, and it's one I'm happy to have. But for our purposes today, we're going to look to Scripture, and we're going to hear what God says on this difficult topic. And I want to start with a fascinating story that Jesus told. This story is unique in all of Scripture because it's the only time we get to hear from someone who is speaking from the place the Bible calls Hades. So let's listen to these words. A man in Hades cries out and he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now remember, this is not some cartoon. This is not some medieval quote from Dante's Inferno. This statement is straight out of a story that Jesus told. So who spoke these words? What's going on here? To read the whole story, we have to go to Luke chapter 16. And many scholars believe this story is one of Jesus' parables. And of course, the parables of Jesus are not things that really happened. They're just illustrations that point to a greater truth. But you should know that some scholars say this story is not just a parable because Jesus uses actual names here, and that's not something he does in other parables. So keep that in mind. Uh, some people say this story really happened, and some say it didn't. Either way, though, Jesus is telling us something important here. So let's listen. Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now, guess who that rich man is? This is the guy who later ends up in agony, in the fire, begging for a drink of water. But there's another character we need to meet, and he shows up in the next verse. Jesus says, At the rich man's gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we got two main characters here, don't we? A rich man whose name we don't know, and a poor man named Lazarus. The rich man is living a very comfortable life while Lazarus is in misery. So what happens next? Let's read on. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died, 
and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So both Lazarus and the rich man have died, and that was bound to happen, right? All of us have an appointment with death. But these two men went to very different places, didn't they? Now Lazarus is in a place of comfort, and he's there with Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. But the rich man is in Hades, in a place of torment. So what can we take from this? Is Jesus giving us some kind of map of the afterlife? Is is he showing us how everything will be laid out in the next world? Well, if if this is a parable, I don't know that we should pay close attention to the geography here. At the same time, though, if there's anyone who could tell us about the world beyond, that would be Jesus. So here's what I can tell you. I believe this story is set in the in-between stage of human existence. If you were here two weeks ago, I mentioned that every human being experiences three stages of existence. Stage one is life now. That's here in this world. Stage three is life forever. That's when you find the final version of heaven and hell. But stage two is life in between. Do you remember that? For anyone who dies in Christ, life in between means that your soul is with Jesus in paradise. But during that phase, you're still waiting for the final judgment and the final resurrection when you'll get your new perfected body. And then there's the flip side. For anyone who dies outside of a relationship with Christ, there is also a waiting period before the final judgment. But in that waiting period, there's already a clear indication of what's going to happen at that judgment. The suffering has already begun. And that's clearly the case for the rich man in this story. And what do you notice about this man? He's wide awake, isn't he? He's fully conscious, and his eternal destiny has already been fixed. He is trapped in a terrible situation. So guess what he does next? He starts thinking about family members who are still alive. Verse 27, the rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And when Abraham mentions Moses and the prophets, he's talking about Scripture. That would be the Old Testament. But then the rich man says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. 
I'm sure most of you are catching the irony of that last sentence because not long after this, Jesus would in fact rise from the dead and many people would in fact still choose to remain unconvinced. But what about us? What do we do with this story? Whether this is a parable or not really isn't that important, in my opinion, because either way, Jesus is trying to communicate something. But what is the message? Is Jesus telling all of us who are wealthy to share our blessings and take care of those in need? Well, sure, I'd say that's a valid takeaway. Is Jesus saying that rich people are bad and poor people are good? Well, no, that's a serious misinterpretation. Because Scripture is clear that money can be a problem when you let it get between you and God, but money can also be a good thing when you leverage it for God's kingdom and for the benefit of others. So in this story, we do find some good lessons about our finances and how to treat others, but is that it? What about this depiction of the afterlife? What, What do we do with that? Well, here's my thought. Would Jesus send us a message about the afterlife that is completely different than reality? That would be a little misleading, wouldn't it? And in the rest of the Bible, I don't see Jesus as being misleading. I see him being very direct and very truthful. And why did he tell the truth? It's because he was motivated by love. Jesus wants good things for all of us, and he wants to spare us from bad things. So in my view, this story falls right in line with what we see in the rest of the Gospels. Jesus consistently taught and warned about hell. So for just a moment, let's say you agree with those people who say, I don't feel like hell could be real, so I choose not to believe in it. If you put yourself in that camp, you are choosing to contradict Jesus himself. Because time and time again, Jesus teaches that if you reject God in this life, you can expect judgment and punishment in the next life. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, some people want to say that hell is a metaphor. It's not a real place. It's not literal punishment. I want to ask you, though, does that description sound like a metaphor to you? It doesn't to me. It sounds like Jesus is warning us about something that's real. In fact, Jesus tells us to take drastic steps to avoid that future reality. In Matthew 18, he says, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away, because it's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Now, if hell was only figurative, that statement from Jesus would be a little ridiculous, wouldn't it? But if eternal punishment is a real possibility, cutting off your hand to avoid it makes all kinds of sense, right? So I don't know about you, but... I'm not going to place my opinions or my feelings above the clear teaching of Jesus. I, I don't think that's a wise thing for anyone to do. But even if you do choose to disagree with Jesus, you still have to deal with the rest of the Bible. 
One of many examples is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is talking about the time of the second coming. And he says, on that day, Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And when that happens, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Wow. That's pretty intense, isn't it? And like I said, we don't like to think about people experiencing eternal punishment, especially in our culture. We struggle with this idea. But in all of my studying, I've found that the message of Scripture is very consistent. Hell is a real place of suffering, and real people will go there. If you want to say that the Bible teaches something different, you have to perform all kinds of acrobatics trying to make the text say something that it doesn't really say. But as for me, I'm sticking with the clear message of Scripture. But then what's next? Once we have this conviction that hell is real, what do we do with that? All too often, the church has mishandled the topic of hell. In some cases, you you hear preachers who sound almost excited about the possibility of some people going to hell. But then in other cases, the church has chosen to be silent. Hell is too unpopular. It's too uncomfortable. If you talk about hell, your attendance may drop. Your offerings may drop. But you know, I do my best to be honest with all of you. I have to preach based on my real convictions, what I see in the Bible. And I can't avoid certain topics because they might make us uncomfortable. And remember, we're talking about eternity here. This is not an area where it's okay to be mistaken. But how do we preach this truth when we still struggle with it ourselves? How do we reconcile a loving God with eternal punishment? All I can do is tell you my personal convictions. I've wrestled with this issue for years, and I keep coming back to a few things that I believe to be true in the core of my soul. I'm going to share five important truths with you. Here's number one. The first thing I try to remember is that I am not God, and I am not the judge. Sometimes I have to step back and ask, who do I think I am? Uh, Do I really think my perspective should carry more weight than the creator of the universe? In Isaiah 55, verse 8, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And then he goes on to say, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So let's be humble enough to admit that God knows way more than what we know. He sees way more than what we see. Sometimes we begin an argument by saying, Well, the God I believe in would never dot, 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 and then we finish the sentence. But Francis Chan answers that argument by saying, so the God you believe in would never, what, disagree with you? (laughs) Or do something that you wouldn't do? Or allow bad things to happen to people? Or, Or be more concerned with his glory than your feelings? You see, God is constantly disrupting our preconceived notions about who he is or what he does. And God has every right to do that because he is God. You and I are not God. (laughs) 
We're not in the position to say what's right and what's wrong. We're not in the position to be the final judge for anyone. And it's extremely arrogant to act like we know better than he does. But we don't have all the answers. There's a lot more to the story than what we know. And sooner or later, we have to defer to him. So that's a good starting place, but then it helps me to take things a step further. The second important truth is that God is far more loving and far more just than I am. If we're troubled by the idea of hell, it's good to remember that no one has done more than God to keep people out of hell. No one has done more than God to keep people out of hell. What's the message of John 3.16? God so loved the world, including you and me and every human being who ever lived, and he hated the thought of being separated from us forever. But at the same time, he couldn't just overlook our sin like it's no big deal. So Jesus came into this world as a man, and he lived a perfect life. But then like a criminal, he suffered and died on the cross because he chose to take the punishment that should have been ours. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, God offered grace to everyone, because he loves everyone. And seriously, would any of us be willing to sacrifice our own lives for the sake of someone who doesn't deserve it? You don't find that kind of love among people, but that's exactly the kind of love that God has. And make no mistake, God takes no pleasure in the punishment of anyone. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God is more loving and more patient than any of us. But we should also pause for a moment to think about God's justice. Imagine what it would be like if God allowed evil to go unpunished. Do we really want a God who just turns his back and tolerates evil? The truth is, we all have a longing for justice, and that longing is a reflection of God's character. A Christian writer named Becky Pippert says, Think how we feel when we see the suffering of someone we love because they're being mistreated. Do we respond by shrugging our shoulders and just tolerating that cruelty? Far from it. Listen to this. She says, Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. So God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. See, sin is very much like a cancer. It feeds on what is good, but it's never satisfied. It just grows and grows, uh, trying to destroy everything in its path. And when you think about your own struggle against sin, you know this is true. So in the end, God has to do something about sin. It has to be cut out and removed. God can't just allow sin in his presence. And we have to remember, if we all got what we deserved, we would all be cut off from God's presence because all of us have harbored sin in our lives. But that's why God's grace is so amazing. He's given us the chance to be with him for all eternity, despite the fact that we don't deserve it. And that takes us to another important truth. We need to celebrate this gift that we don't deserve. Scripture offers complete 
hope, complete confidence for anyone who dies in Christ. By all rights, you and I would be shut out of heaven forever. So God has chosen to be more than good to us. He's he's made a way for us to escape the punishment that we earned for ourselves. We are not entitled to God's grace in any way, shape, or form, but he still chooses to offer it. And when we receive that grace, we have total assurance of a home in heaven. At the same time, though, we can't ignore what happens when people reject God's offer of salvation. This is a hard truth, but I can't deny it. Scripture gives us no hope and no confidence for those who die without Christ. A lot of people get confused about this, but let's be clear. When Jesus went to the cross and he sacrificed his life for us, what exactly did he accomplish? Did Jesus at that time restore all people to God? No, he did not. The cross created the possibility of a restored relationship with God. It's a free gift. He offers it to anyone and everyone, but we still have to receive that gift. Romans 3.25 says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And what does that faith look like? Well, when you put your faith in Jesus, you put your life and your future in his hands. You not only believe in Jesus, but you also confess that he is your Lord, your master. You repent and turn away from everything in your life that's not what God wants. And you are baptized into Christ and you die to your old life because you're starting a new Christ-centered life. And for the rest of your days on earth, you allow Jesus to lead you and direct your decisions, both large and small. That's what real faith looks like. And when you are saved by grace through faith, you're accepting God's offer of a restored relationship with him that will last for all of eternity. That relationship is only possible because of God's crazy love for us. But every step of the way, we have to make the conscious decision to let God be God. For many people, that's the hard part. They may like the idea of heaven, but they're not interested in giving control over to God. They don't feel like sacrificing their own desires in favor of his desires. And let's be honest, we all struggle with that, don't we? Even if we have given our lives to Christ, we're still going to struggle with those old desires for the rest of our lives. And thankfully, God's grace covers that. But what about those people who just never choose to put their faith in Jesus? What will God do with them? Well, we have to go back to who God is. God is love. And love isn't real unless it's a choice. Now, does God have the ability to control our thoughts and force us to make all the best choices? Sure, he can do whatever he wants. But there's no love in that. Think about it. Let's say you're in a relationship with someone you care about very much, and then one day you hear about this computer chip that you could plant in the other person's brain. And let's say through that chip, you could get the other person to say or do whatever you wanted. If you had that opportunity, would you take it? It may sound kind of appealing at first, but it wouldn't take long before the whole relationship felt completely hollow. It wouldn't be love. 
So no, God will not force a relationship on us. That's why C.S. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. So if you spend your whole life saying, God, leave me alone, there will come a day when he will honor your wishes. And let's make sure we understand the nature of hell. Now, does Scripture talk about fire and burning and weeping and gnashing of teeth? Yes, that's all in there. But in the end, those details are not what hell is all about. It's just like what Dylan said last week about heaven. What makes heaven heaven is not streets of gold. It's the glory of God. It's the presence of Jesus. And in the same way, what makes hell hell is not flames and burning sulfur. It's the absence of God. In James chapter 1, we see that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So what does that mean? It means every good thing we have in life, it comes from God. Go ahead, make a list. Laughter, music, beauty, home, love itself. All of these blessings and millions more are good and perfect gifts that come from God. So imagine being cut off from the source of all joy and wisdom and love. That's what hell will be. Hell is total separation from the author of life and the giver of all good gifts. I don't want that for anyone. And God doesn't want that either. But do you see why we have to talk about this? There's no room for complacency here. There's no room for carelessness. We can't make light of this issue or joke about it. And so here's the final important truth that I need to share with you. If I really believe what the Bible says and I really care about people, I will let God use me to point others to Jesus. You know, these are interesting times that we live in. The whole idea of converting someone to a different faith has become fairly unpopular these days. In a recent study from the Barna Group, researchers found that 47% of Christian millennials believe that it's at least somewhat wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. 47% people who claim to be Christians say that's wrong. And you know what? That's what happens when we let the surrounding culture influence our thinking. But let's circle back around and remember eternity. This life is short. Eternity is long. Everyone spends eternity somewhere. And no, God does not call us to run around and treat people like they're projects. We've said that before. But God does call us to love. And if we really love someone, we have to care about where they're going to spend eternity. That's why we have a challenge for all of us at Plum Creek right now. The challenge is for everyone, including me, to invite your one to church for Easter. And in case this idea is new to you, your one is a person that God puts on your heart. It's someone who needs Jesus, and they're also within your sphere of influence. You may have more than one one, and that's fine, but we all have at least one. Hopefully, you've already identified that person, and you've already been praying for them. But you know, Easter is only two weeks away. So this morning, we're going to have a time of focused prayer. 
We're going to pray that God will use us. And we're praying for people to have open hearts so that as many as possible will come to know Jesus and find forgiveness and salvation and the promise of eternal life. Let's go to God right now. Father, as we come to you, we want to acknowledge that your thoughts are far above our thoughts and your ways are far above our ways. We need to defer to you. And Lord, I pray that uh, you will help us to live in the light of eternity. Not, not placing a burden on our shoulders that we weren't intended to carry because we can't save anyone. But you have called us. You want to partner with us to point people to you, to that life-changing relationship with Jesus. So God, I pray that you will do that. I pray for your church across the world, but also right here at Plum Creek, that we will make disciples. We'll see people come to find salvation through Jesus. And if someone needs to find that right here in this moment, I pray that you will lead them and they will respond. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.